Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Social Distancing Radio. Wow, I'm already tongue-tied. That is lovely. I'm going to have a sip of this read wine because clearly I need it to loosen up my tongue. Mm. Oh, that's good stuff. I'm still working on that Malbec. Wow, I can't fucking talk. <clears throat> One of the things from the last episode that I, I meant to talk about at the end is, A, it is so funny to me when Van Helsing like starts his first appearance in the book by listing all of his credentials, because it reminds me of those people whose email signatures are like an exceptionally lengthy list of their credentials. I work in IT for my day job. I have met a lot of what we used to call paper tigers back in the day, who are people who have like a million certifications and their email signatures are just this alphabet soup of certifications. And that always amuses me. That made me think of that. Um, another thing is I just love Van Helsing. He's a character. He's like generous with his time and his expertise. And he really loves these people. And, He's like, you saved my life once, so I'm going to come running any old time. He's a great friend. And like, he gets something important about the doctor-patient relationship and intergenerational relationships. Um, I think he's wrong when he says that the young don't confide in the young. They confide in the old. Uh, except about, like, there are definitely times, I think, in all of our lives when we think, I want to talk to an expert about this thing. I'm just not going to mention it to my friends. So I think he's pretty good at getting at that. Anyway, I'm going to have one more sip of Reed and wine. Mm. Oh yeah. God, I need that. Let's get back to it. Oh, and also I got Dr. Seward's first name wrong last time, but whatever. Dr. Seward's Diary. 4 September. Zoophagus patient still keeps up our interest in him. He had only one outburst, and that was yesterday at an unusual time. Just before the stroke of noon, he began to grow restless. The attendant knew the symptoms and at once summoned aid. Fortunately, the men came at a run and were just in time, for at the stroke of noon, he became so violent that it took all their strength to hold him. In about five minutes, however, he began to get more and more quiet, and finally sank into a sort of melancholy, in which state he has remained up to now. The attendant tells me that his screams whilst in the paroxysm were really appalling. I found my hands full when I got in, attending to some of the other patients who were frightened by him. Indeed, I can quite understand the effect, for the sounds disturbed even me, though I was some distance away. It is now after the dinner hour of the asylum, 
and as yet my patient sits in a corner brooding with a dull, sullen, woebegone look in his face, which seems rather to indicate than to show something directly. I cannot quite understand it. Later. Another change in my patient. At five o'clock I looked in on him and found him seemingly as happy and contented as he used to be. He was catching flies and eating them, and was keeping note of his capture by making nail marks on the edge of the door between the ridges of padding. When he saw me, he came over and apologized for his bad conduct, and asked me in a very humble, cringing way to be led back to his own room and to have his notebook again. I thought it well to humor him, so he is back in his room with the window open. He has the sugar on his, of his tea spread out on the windowsill, and is reaping quite a harvest of flies. He is not now eating them, but putting them into a box as of old, and is already examining the corners of his room to find a spider. I tried to get him to talk about the past few days, for any clue to his thoughts would be of immense help to me, but he would not rise. For a moment or two he looked very sad and said in a sort of faraway voice, as though saying it rather to himself than to me, All over, all over, he has deserted me. No hope for me now unless I do it for myself. Then suddenly, turning to me in a resolute way, he said, Doctor, won't you be very good to me and let me have a little more sugar? I think it would be good for me. And the flies, I said. Yes, the flies like it too, and I like the flies, therefore I like it. And there are people who know so little as to think that madmen do not argue. I procured him a double supply and left him as happy a man as, I suppose, any in the world. I wish I could fathom his mind. Midnight. Another change in him. I had been to see Miss Westenra, whom I found much better, and had just returned and was standing at her own gate looking at the sunset, when once more, once more I heard him yelling. As his room is on this side of the house, I could hear it better than in the morning. It was a shock to me to turn from the wonderful smoky beauty of a sunset over London, with its lurid lights and inky shadows and all the marvelous tints that come on foul clouds, even as on foul water, and to realize all the grim sternness of my own cold stone building, with its wealth of breathing misery and my own desolate heart to endure it all. I reached him just as the sun was going down, and from his window saw the red disc sink. As it sank, he became less and less frenzied, and just as it dipped, he slid from the hands that held him an inert mass on the floor. It is wonderful, however, what intellectual recuperative power lunatics have, for within a few minutes he stood up quite calmly and looked around him. I signaled to the attendants not to hold him, for I was anxious to see what he would do. He went straight over to the window and brushed out the crumbs of sugar. Then he took his fly box and emptied it outside and threw away the box. Then he shut the window and, crossing over, sat down on his bed. All this surprised me, so I asked him, Are you not going to keep flies any more? No, he said. I'm sick of all that rubbish. He certainly is a wonderfully interesting study. I wish I could get some glimpse of his mind or of the cause of his sudden passion. Stop. There may be a clue after all, if we can find why today his paroxysms came on at high noon and at sunset. Can it be that there is a malign influence of the sun at periods which affects certain natures, as at times the moon does others? We shall see. Telegram, Seward, London, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. 4 September. 
Patients still better today. Telegram, Seward, London, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. 5 September. Patient greatly improved. Good appetite. Sleeps naturally. Good spirits. Color coming back. Telegram, Seward, London, to Van Helsing, Amsterdam. 6 September. Terrible change for the worse. Come at once. Do not lose an hour. I hold over telegram to Holmwood till I have seen you. Chapter 10 Letter, Dr. Seward, to Honorable Arthur Holmwood. 6 September My dear Art, My news today is not so good. Lucy this morning had gone back a bit. There is, however, one good thing which has risen from it. Mrs. Westenra was naturally anxious concerning concerning Lucy, and has consulted me professionally about her. I took advantage of the opportunity and told her that my old master, Van Helsing, the great specialist, was coming to stay with me, and that I would put her in his charge conjointly with myself. So now we can come and go without alarming her unduly, for a shock to her would mean sudden death, and this, in Lucy's weak condition, might be disastrous to her. We are hedged in with difficulties, all of us, my poor old fellow, but please God, we shall come through them all right. If any need, I shall write, so that if you do not hear from me, take it for granted that I am simply waiting for news. In haste, yours ever, John Seward. Dr. Seward's Diary 7 September The first thing Van Helsing said to me when we met at Liverpool Street was, Have you said anything to our young friend, the lover of her? No, I said. I waited till I had seen you, as I said in my telegram. I wrote him a letter simply telling him that you were coming, as Miss Westenra was not so well, and that I should let him know if need be. Right, my friend, quite right. Better he not know as yet. Perhaps he shall never know. I pray so, but if it be needed, then he shall know all. And my good friend John, let me caution you. You deal with the madmen. All men are mad in some way or the other. And inasmuch as you deal direct discreetly with your madmen, so deal with God's madmen too, the rest of the world. You tell not your madmen what you do, nor why you do it. You tell them not what you think. So you shall keep knowledge in its place, where it may rest, where it may gather its kind around it and breed. You and I shall keep as yet what we know here and here. He touched me on the heart and on the forehead, and then touched himself the same way. I have for myself thoughts at the present. Later I shall unfold to you. Why not now? I asked. It may do some good. We may arrive at some decision. He stopped and looked at me and said, My friend John, when the corn is grown, even before it is ripened, while the milk of its mother earth is in him and the sunshine has not yet begun to paint him with the gold, the husbandman, he pull the ear and rub him between his rough hands and blow away the green chaff and say to you, Look, he's good corn. He will make good crop when the time comes. I did not see the application and told him so. For reply, he reached over and took my ear in his hand and pulled it playfully, as he used long ago to do at lectures, and said, The good husbandman tell you so then because he knows, but not till then. But you do not find the good husbandman dig up his planted corn to see if he grow. That is for the children who play at husbandry, and not for those who take it as the work of their life. See you now, friend John. I have sown my corn, and nature has her work to do in making it sprout. If he sprouted all, there is some promise, and I wait till the year begins to swell. 
He broke off, for he evidently saw that I understood. Then he went on, and very gravely, You were always a careful student, and your casebook was ever more full than the rest. You were only student then. Now you are master, and I trust that good habit have not fail. Remember, my friend, that knowledge is stronger than memory, and we should not trust the weaker. Even if you have not kept the good practice, let me tell you that this case of our dear miss is one that may be, mind I say may be, of such interest to us and others that all the rest may not make him kick the beam, as your people say. Take then good note of it. Nothing is too small. I counsel you put down in record even your doubts and surmises. Hereafter it may be of interest to you to see how true you guess. We learn from failure, not from success. When I described Lucy's symptoms, the same as before, but infinitely more marked, he looked very grave, but said nothing. He took with him a bag in which were many instruments and drugs, the ghastly paraphernalia of our beneficial trade, as he once called in one of his lectures, the equipment of a professor of the healing craft. When we were shown in, Mrs. Westenra met us. She was alarmed, but not nearly so much as I expected to find her. Nature, in one of her beneficent moods, has ordained that even death has some antidote to its own terrors. Here, in a case where any shock may prove fatal, matters are so ordered that, from some cause or other, the thing is not personal, even the terrible change in her daughter to whom she is so attached, do not seem to reach her. It is something like the way Dame Nature gathers round a foreign body an envelope of some insensitive tissue which can protect from evil that which it would otherwise harm by contact. If this be an ordered selfishness, then we should pause before we condemn anyone for the vice of egoism, for there may be deeper root for its causes than we have knowledge of. I used my knowledge of this phase of spiritual pathology and laid down a rule that she should not be present with Lucy or think of her illness more than was absolutely required. She assented readily, so readily that I saw again the hand of nature fighting for life. Van Helsing and I were shown up to Lucy's room. If I was shocked when I saw her yesterday, I was horrified when I saw her today. She was ghastly, chalkily pale. The red seemed to have gone even from her lips and gums, and the bones of her face stood out prominently. Her breathing was painful to see her here. Van Helsing's face grew set as marble, and his eyebrows converged till they almost touched over his nose. Lucy lay motionless and did not seem to have strength to speak, so for a little while we were all silent. Then Van Helsing beckoned to me, and we went gently out of the room. The instant we had closed the door, he stepped quickly along the passage to the next door, which was open. Then he pulled me quickly in with him and closed the door. "'My God,' he said, "'this is dreadful. There is no time to be lost.' She will die for sheer want of blood to keep the heart's action as it should be. There must be transfusion of blood at once. Is it you or me? I am younger and stronger, Professor. It must be me. Then get ready at once. I will bring up my bag. I am prepared. I went downstairs with him, and as we were going, there was a knock at the hall door. When we reached the hall, the maid had just opened the door, and Arthur was stepping quickly in. He rushed up to me, saying in an eager whisper, Jack, I was so anxious. I read between the lines of your letter and have been in an agony. The dad was better, so I ran down here to see for myself. Is not that gentleman Dr. Van Helsing? I am so thankful to you, sir, for coming. When first the professor's eye had lit upon him, he had been angry at his interruption at such a time, but now, as he took in his stalwart proportions and recognized the strong young manhood which seemed to emanate from him, his eyes gleamed. Without a pause, he said to him gravely as he held out his hand, Sir, you have come in time. You were the lover of our dear miss. She is bad, 
very, very bad. Nay, my child, do not go like that. For he suddenly grew pale and sat down in a chair, almost fainting. You are to help her. You can do more than any that live, and your courage is your best help. And that's a great place to stop. So we will talk again soon. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.